Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm I'm really excited today about the guests that we have because I think that we're going to be learning a lot from all the different experiences that he's had as a, as an entrepreneur. So without further ado, John Carter, welcome on board today. Hey Alejandro, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So you have built multiple companies. So how many of those uh, have you really built and, and and acquired? How many how many are there? Um, there's four total companies, uh, but I'm sure as we'll get into later in the show, the latest one is pivoted. So you could almost say five, uh, cause the pivot is somewhat of a unique company, but yeah, four to five. Got it. And at what point in your life did the entrepreneurial bug start knocking on your door? <laughs> well, I am, uh, you know, I have, I have the entrepreneur disease as, uh, us entrepreneurs know, <laughs> I, you know, as, as a young, young kid, I was doing, you know, wacky things like, um, uh, my parents used to buy massive boxes of hot dogs from Costco to, you know, save money. We were big into hot dogs, I guess. And, and I, uh, I had the idea I was going to, you know, sell hot dogs at the end of our driveway. Uh, most kids do, you know, lemonade stands, but that was my, my deal. I didn't know how to cook. So I just microwave them until they would explode and then, you know, put some cheese on them maybe for like a dollar more and put up signs all over the neighborhood. And, and sure enough, we sold, we sold a bunch of hot dogs. We actually had a line of cars, uh, buying hot dogs and I was making money, just running back and forth, you know, nuking these, these hot dogs. And, um, a cop car actually came at the end, uh, towards the end of the day. And I thought I was going to sell a hot dog to the cop, but, uh, he, he wanted to see the food permit which of course I, I didn't, I didn't have, uh, and he, yeah, he was pretty serious too. I was, I think I was 10 or 10 or 12 at the time. And, wow. uh, you know, my dad had to come out and rescue me, uh, oh and, God. uh, he didn't take me to jail or anything, but you know, there was, there was always those kind of things happening all through, uh, all through my, my childhood, freaking my mom out going, you know, selling door to door, uh, magazine subscriptions for our school contest to win, you know, first prize, a, a really crappy $10 radio. I probably, you know, put a you know, hundred hours into, into winning that and staying out till like, you know, 11 o'clock at night at, you know, pretty young age. And those kind of things were just kind of in my blood. I think as an entrepreneur, when it's in your blood, you just, you just kind of see the world a little differently. You want to kind of hack, hack things together to try to get like, in that case, enough money to buy, I don't know, baseball cards and, you know, whatever I was into uh, at the time. But the, the first real legitimate business started uh, in college. Uh, I was selling uh, baby products out of my my dorm room 
diapers and baby formula uh, <laughs> kind of random as well. But yeah, that's how I, that's the first uh, this, this was this was E Haven, uh, 19 years old. Is that right? Yeah, it started as Baby's Heaven. Um, okay. We started just selling, you know, slinging baby products, but uh, but we eventually got into other product lines, so we changed it to E Heaven. And how did you come up with this? Because being a 19 year old, and probably at that time you're going out, you know, hanging out with friends, but but coming back home and 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 dealing with diapers, I mean, it's a, not the first thing that it would come to mind for someone at that age. <laughs> for sure, it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of random, you know. I I think I'd actually how I got into that, I'd go back even a little bit further. So when I was 18, 17, 18, I was getting ready to go out to college, and uh, this was my inspiration for becoming a true entrepreneur. When I was a kid, I didn't really know even what that term meant, but uh, you know, it actually the motivation happened while I was surfing. So I went. Went out surfing, just like any old day. I was actually at Newport Beach. My parents lived about 30 minutes inland uh, from there in Placentia. And so I'm sitting there. There's like a lull. There's no waves. And I'm just, I just glance back at the, at the shore. And I don't know why I didn't notice before, but there are just million-dollar mansions as far as the eye can see in both directions. And when I started thinking about it, I'm like, pretty much any time I go surfing, there are million-dollar mansions as far as the eye can see. And that was the moment where I realized that there is just an abundance of wealth in the world. Like, look how many people can afford a dream home where I could actually, like, live on the beach and surf. Like, that would be incredible. So I started thinking, like, what do these people do? You know, I, I didn't really know, but I just kind of assumed that they were probably building their own companies. Uh, and, you know, that's where I was like, well, you know, I want to do this. You know, I want to get that house on the beach. So, you know, that was my that was my motivation. I learned later in life that that's not the right motivation to uh, to start a company around, but it did get me started. And so so at that point, I was looking, you know, for an idea. I went off to college, Point Loma Nazarene in, in San Diego, and one of the jobs I got to help pay for college was at a hamburger joint. I was passing out flyers at a swap meet right across the street, trying to get people to come in and buy hamburgers. And so, uh, you know, it was there that, uh, the idea for my first business popped up, which was, there was all these pregnant women and women with babies going into the swap meet. And I had made my rounds in the swap meet a couple of times. I noticed that nobody was selling any baby products. So I thought this is it, you know, I'm going to sell baby products at the swap meet. It was a horrible idea. I, I wouldn't recommend anyone try that business model. It failed right. within two weeks. It was the shortest lived business, you know, ever. Cause it, I literally didn't even sell enough to pay for my entrance fee the first weekend. And the second weekend I tried to expand. I got my buddy to work for me for free and we went to two swap meets and we lost even more money. And, you know, I was in college. So I was out of money at that point because I wasn't passing out flyers right. and, uh, you know, and that business shut down, but but very quickly, um, and luckily, uh, another friend of mine was a web designer at the time. And this is like back in like 2000. And, you know, he's like, dude, you should sell this stuff on the Internet. And I, and I didn't really know much about the Internet. I should have because I was, you know, it's kind of a heyday of the Internet. But I went to college with a typewriter uh, with, with a little word processing screen on it. You know, we were we were kind of, you know, sort of lower middle class. We couldn't afford a full computer. There were computers in the library, but I didn't really, you know, I'm not really a scholastic type of person. I didn't spend a lot of time in the library, so I just didn't really know much about it. He was like, don't worry about it. I'm going to build, you know, build you an awesome baby website. You're going to be able to sell these on, on, online. I'm like, this sounds amazing. Like, you know, and I basically had paid for the baby products with a credit card that I'd gotten because at college back in those days, you could just fill out a form and they would like give you a credit card. And so I had like $300 left on that credit card. And he is like, that's what I'm going to charge you for the website. So for 300 bucks, you 
spent a couple of weeks, he built this website. And it was, it was so funny when I came in there to finally view the website, I'm like, what does this thing look like? I'm picturing this beautiful, like little, you know, family oriented website, you know, blues, pinks. Well, it ends up, he's a hard rock. Uh, he's in a hard rock band, like heavy metal. And he has long black hair and he loves purple. And so I come in to see this baby's heaven and it, <laughs> it's literally all black. It's got a gold gate. And then in Metallica lettering in purple, it says baby's heaven <laughs> like across the top. <laughs> it was the worst uh, marketing uh, and branding, you know, for what we were trying to sell that, that probably ever exists on the internet today. Um, but that was how I, you know, got my first website and uh, got started. Got it. And, and you obviously sold this one for, for a bit. I mean, it was just the first uh, rodeo and you were still young, but at least from, from this time around, you were able to get your idea for, for your next business, which is client shop. And can you walk us through what was the incubation process of client shop and, and, and what was the business model behind it? Yeah. So what happened was at the baby company, we, you know, we didn't know how to get any customers at first. And I remember somebody turned me on to the idea, like, you just have to find other websites that your target demographic is going to and that you don't compete with. And so for me, not knowing any better, I just went to Huggies.com because most of the stuff that we thought we'd sell would be diapers and just said, hey, guys, uh, can you link to us? Like, you don't sell, they, they don't sell Huggies directly. They sell by the truckload. And so uh, they said yes. <laughs> and then they were, then they said, hey, give us a banner. And uh, being kind of clueless, I didn't know what a banner was. I ran back, you know, to my web designer, Dan. I said, dude, we, we need a banner. Huggy, what's a banner? And so he built one up and we made this one pink and blue and cute with little babies on it and put it up on Huggies. And that was literally how I got my very first sale on the Internet. And from that point on, we just kept adding more websites and we learned about affiliate programs and pay-per-click marketing. And it was all like just a self-education, just looking at they didn't really have blogs back in those days. So it was like message boards and just anything I could do. I was just soaking up information, just learning as fast as I could. We grew it to a couple million in sales. Um, and we did sell it to one of our biggest competitors, but not for very much. That was just, that was a great learning lesson. And something I always tell entrepreneurs who are thinking about getting started is you want to start with a great idea if you have one, but if you don't, if you have an awful idea, like selling baby products at a swap meet, which is one of the worst <laughs> ideas, uh, you will still learn a ton just by jumping into it. As long as you have that sort of uh, education mindset, like I'm going to learn as much as I can, as quickly as I can. And it was so much fun just figuring all that out. Like nowadays, you know, things have changed for me, but uh, in, in a little bit you know, more stable environment financially, but it was just great just hustling and, and, you know, pulling that thing together from nothing. Literally, I gave my last 300 bucks to Dan and had to just hustle from then on out. <clears throat> we sold it again, not for a game changer, but a great, great lesson learner. And then, um, what happened was right before I sold it, there was this, uh, interview I was doing for a job. And this person had mentioned that their company that they had worked for was doing insurance leads on the internet. And basically what this means is you just, you know, hey, are you looking for insurance? Fill out this form on the website. We'll match you to four insurance brokers and we'll send your information to all four of them and they'll compete to get you the best rate on insurance. But what that company's doing is taking the form you fill out and they're selling it to the four insurance companies. And I thought about that. I was like, this is genius. You know, my idea on the baby product side, I had like literally a self storage unit by my house where I had to go every day and tape up, you know, diapers and baby food inside of boxes and ship them out. And then I customer service when, you know, something would arrive damaged or broken. And believe me, you do not want to be into customer service 
with women who are having a baby in a very short time frame, and you're you just delivered a broken crib. <laughs> like they are, <laughs> they can go crazy, uh, and and they did, and they were rightfully so. I mean, we you know there were some mistakes that happened, and it was it was such a challenge. And then all of a sudden, I saw this business model that was selling information. I was like, wow, this is this is going to be a game changer, and it was. So right after I sold that company, uh, the baby company, I started working on this. And instead of doing insurance leads, I ended up doing mortgage leads because my buddy was a mortgage broker, banker, and so I could sell my leads to him to start, and then I could you know, bring on other mortgage lenders. And it was really fascinating because I went from eating top ramen and being so broke. In fact, I was so broke on that first company that you know, when we would uh, sell product, uh, we would get some revenue coming in, and then, of course, we would have to buy more product. And of course, spend some money on marketing. And so like my bank account was just kind of always hovering around zero. And sometimes it would go below zero and sometimes it would go above. And it would just do that kind of constantly over that two-year period. We had so many overdraft charges from Wells Fargo. We owed, I owed, when I sold the company, $12,000 in overdraft fees, uh, you know, from, from dipping below zero, you know, that many times. And so talk about a cash flow, you know, nightmare and, uh, and just the challenge of trying to stay afloat. That's just hardcore bootstrapping, uh, you know, at its finest. Just nobody would give me money. I was 19 years old. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I was, you know, working out of college for about half the time until I dropped out. And you know, my parents didn't have any money, so I couldn't do the friends and family round. I just had to, I just had to hustle. Um, but it made it and survived. And uh, you know, and then and then when I started the second company, the business model was dramatically better. And the idea was actually pretty good. It wasn't the first time anybody had ever done that on the internet, but it was a really good model. And all those internet marketing tactics I learned at the first business, I was able to apply to that new model. And literally the third month in business, we netted $100,000 in profit. And it seems like an overnight success, but it was really the two, three years of just, you know, the self-education and the and the eating top ramen that really kind of, you know, made it all happen. But but it was that quick. And it was just, again, all, taking all the learnings and then applying it to a really good idea. It just, it just shot up. Got so it. that was a, a game changer. And it, you know, funny story around that is my, I, my tax advisor said, Hey, you got to buy like one of these big, heavy cars. Cause you'll be able to write the thing off. This is back in the days of like the, you know, the Hummers and the big giant trucks. And so sure enough, I bought one of these and I drive home to see my mom and they know I've been living off top ramen you know, and they just like get a real job. I can't believe you dropped out of college. Typical parent, you know, things when they're worried about their kid who's who's not in college anymore and in barely making it. And then I pull up in a in a brand new car and she <laughs> she literally starts kind of, you know, crying and she's like, I can't believe you're you're selling drugs. <laughs> <laughs> she, she thought I had uh, gone to the dark side and was because wow. uh, how else does a you know, I was probably twenty one at the time or twenty two. A yeah. kid this age afford, you know, afford that. And, uh, you know, I had to, I had to, it, it, I kept trying to convince her that I wasn't selling drugs. She didn't really buy it. My dad, a little bit more, um, you know, believe, believe me a little bit more. It wasn't until four years later that we sold that company. And that was a good exit, a life-changing exit. We can talk about that if we want. But yeah. the, the Fortune uh, Small Business did an article on it. She, my mom's a teacher. And they did an article on selling your company and they interviewed like seven people. They just happened to throw me on the cover and I didn't even know at the time. And her school gets that magazine. It showed up in the uh, you know, teacher's lounge and she's walking around. You know, another teacher actually sees it because I went to school there. And it's John Carter, isn't that your son? You know, and she looks down <laughs> and she, she sees me on the cover and it says sells this company for you know, millions of dollars. And uh, 
And she called me again, crying, but this time, you know, proud and saying, you know, you, you're not selling drugs. I'm so happy. That's the cover where you're like uh, surfing. Oh, it's, it's on the beach. If I yeah, don't wrong. Totally. They, they took a picture like at sunset, you know, in San Diego on the beach. So I think the picture earned the, uh, earned the cover and they're like, it's time to sell, you know, go surf, that kind of stuff. stuff. Meanwhile, I wasn't surfing. I was like working really hard for the company that just bought us, but, but it looked cool and sounded cool. So yeah, that was great. Now my mom's very proud and she, she loves following my endeavors. That's great. So, so I guess with the client shop, so client shop was a, what's, what's a bootstrap startup. So no outside financing. So what were some of the lessons that you learned? Well, for one, uh, a good business model that doesn't have high overhead. Like we, I was selling information, so I could literally just work out of my house, uh, generate leads for two or three dollars using the internet marketing tactics I had learned, and just being really, um, really kind of innovative there, trying different things that the big companies just weren't doing. I could generate a lead for two or three bucks, and then I could sell it digitally, meaning email it to you know a mortgage broker and charge him 20 bucks or 30 bucks. And so it had cash flow right from the beginning. It was a good model. Um, there wasn't a lot of competition. So that was the first lesson is, wow, you know, with the same amount of education, I was living on top ramen with a bad model <laughs> or just a generic e-commerce model, which takes time to scale and requires funding typically versus, you know, this information selling model, which uh, it just changed my life just by just by having a better model. So models are important, obviously. The other thing I thought was really important, this was a very low barrier to entry. Like you could start a mortgage lead company in your boxers at home, which is what I did. Well, I wasn't the only one that kind of became aware of this. And I've never seen anything like it. We started having competitors come in and we literally would have five or 10 new competitors like a week. Same type of situation, guys in their house, just, you know, creating a website that, you know, you could fill out a form on and then calling up mortgage bankers and selling these leads. It became insanely uh, competitive. And so what we had to do was we had to continually evolve our model to stay ahead of this pack of competitors that was growing and growing and growing. And I knew that things like pay-per-click marketing or SEM and affiliate programs, that that was all going to become very saturated, commoditized, and the margins as more people come into the space, the margins just shrink and shrink and shrink. So I'm willing to sell it for 20 bucks. And then somebody comes in and says, I'll undercut you and I'll sell it for 18. And then the next one comes in at 16. It just, the profit margins just shrink. And so what we decided to do is go completely outside of the internet, which is weird because the internet was how we got started and made all of our money year one. How we ended up making our money at the later years, right before we sold, was we actually went to India and uh, set up a call center over there to actually get people on the phone and then when we get them on the phone, we were doing what's called live transfers. This was very innovative in those days. Um, now it's kind of you know status quo, but we would have somebody call the person up, get them on the phone, say, hey, we notice you're interested in refinancing or home purchase. And we would transfer them live right to a, a rep, like a countrywide or something like that. So the, the rep was literally buying somebody on the phone. Um, and that was a huge hit. And we could sell those for like $120 each. Um, and you know, we had hundreds of people in India working on that. And that helped us continue our growth. Uh, and we were growing like crazy. We grew, we were 2015, we were San Diego's fastest growing private company with 2,700% growth over three years. And it was because we just never 
we never got fat and happy. And, and I remember a lot of people did like you were making so much money. If you were in the mortgage leads in 2002 and 2003, it was just so easy. And so a lot of people went to like Hawaii, bought a mansion, sat on the beach, kind of just kept doing the same thing. One person out of their room, you know, building these mortgage leads and making money. And, and I took the opposite approach, which was, okay, I've got a limited window here where I can make some money. Let's take all that money and invest it in building an amazing team. And let's innovate and let's build and let's grow this into a real business. And so by the time we sold, we had over 100 employees and we were doing really innovative stuff like live transfers. And that's why the company that bought us wanted to buy us. It was a huge space, a lot of competition, but we had really, I think, made the right move there. So a lot of those guys that were sitting happy on the beach are now, you know, I don't know where they are today, but right after we sold the company in 2006, uh, you know, the bottom of that entire market fell out. If you remember the refi boom and then the bust. Yeah. So we got very lucky getting out of the time, but also, you know, we kind of had that mindset that this was, that there wasn't going to be around forever and let's make hay while the sun is shining. And that really paid off, changed my life actually. Got it. And I heard that uh, you were alluding now to the sale in 2006. And I heard as well that there were a fair amount of ups and downs and a very interesting story behind the, the acquisition process. So how, how did this uh, acquisition come about? Yeah, so... As I mentioned before, we kind of thought the end of the refinance boom was going to happen probably around 2004, 2005. So we started looking to potential acquirers um, early and uh, started talking to various people. There was one company in particular that was very interested. They were rolling up different companies on the Internet and uh, years to get the entire sale done from the time that we started talking to them to the time that we actually sold, which was interesting because I think it's good for companies if they're if they're thinking they're in a boom to start, you know, two years early because it can take that long. I've, I've also had exits that happen much sooner. But uh, in that case scenario, they wanted to get to know us. They liked everything that was going on. They wanted to see continued growth. They also saw that the margins were shrinking with online uh, marketing and, you know, wanted to see what we could do with this call center and if it would actually work. And so there was a lot of relationship building and sort of following our progress. And that led them to eventually want to buy us. Um, in the buy process, there was a ton of drama. I mean, I think the biggest thing was what happens to entrepreneurs is you get, you know, they start talking numbers with like an LOI, uh, you know, or term sheet, and you start to see like, wow, this is going to change my life. You know, this yeah. is a lot of money. And you start running the numbers, and you start thinking about what's going to happen and what you're going to do with that. Remember, I'd always had that dream to have that house on the beach. You know, now that dream was within reach. All I had to do was close this deal. And that's incredibly distracting uh, because you really need to keep your eye on the ball and get back into the grind of your day-to-day -day work because you just never know if that's going to come through. Um, and so, you know, that was a that was a that was a tough one to learn. And thankfully, I surrounded myself with some really good advisors. I got two advisors that had sold their companies already that I could call, like, sort of on a daily basis as we're going through this. Um, negotiation to get advice. And that was one of the, you know, the obvious and, and early advices was, hey, do not think about the money. Put that out of your head. It's not going to happen. Get back to the grind and grow your business. Pretend this is just like this should be, you know, your weekends and evenings sort of side job. Your core job is to keep the business growing. Um, and, you know, through that whole time period when we were trying to sell it, I think they point to something and they want to get a, you know, a better deal. Uh, and we definitely had that happen. And I think the way we negotiated our way through that and ended up with a pretty good deal at the end of the day was, A, we weren't married to the outcome. 
uh, I had changed my mindset to say that money's not there. I'm not getting that house on the beach yet. This is just, you know, an exercise. And if it does happen, great, but um, I wasn't planning on it. So we could walk away. The other thing was I had a couple of really good advisors that I was able to, you know, ping. Now we had a banker as well. The banker though is is motivated to get their fees, right? Yeah. And I I actually remember I called uh you know our banker right when we got this, you know, 12th hour renegotiation, which again that happens quite a bit. And I was like, what do we do? You know, this is a massive haircut on the deal. And the banker was like, take it. <laughs> I was like, what? I mean, we're, we're you know, we just we just half our valuation. Like, wh- why would we possibly do that? And, you know, again, the banker is incentivized to, you know, get their fees and they had, they were going to get paid very handsomely for that. Um, then I called my entrepreneur advisors who had been there, done that. And, you know, their advice was you know, negotiate, negotiate the heck out of that. And, uh, and so, you know, we did, and we spent hours and hours and hours negotiating. And I actually sent my CFO who was with me, I would stay down and, uh, we first tried to negotiate it with all of us in the room and we kind of got stuck. And so then we played a little good cop, bad cop. I, I stayed down in the car. I sent my CFO up to, uh, up to negotiate with their CFO. They were, they both got along really well. Then you took the two CEOs out of the room and helped. And, uh, and he would come down and say, here, we made some progress. And then I would, I would go, okay, here's our next tactic. And I was getting these tactics from either my advisor or a really funny story. I actually, uh, got a gift from my girlfriend at the time, which was a negotiating CD, (laughs) had advice on it, how to negotiate. And I kid you not, I literally put the CD in, into my car and would listen to the chapters while uh, my CFO was up there negotiating. And, and, you know, and that would develop my strategy for the next round, either that or or talking to an advisor. I did that so much. Actually, we were negotiating for so long that my car battery died. And this is kind of interesting, almost like the universe intervening car battery dies. I freak out. I call Triple A, get over here. We need your help. You know, like I got, I got to get my battery back up in the middle of the negotiation of my life right now. And uh, sure enough, uh, the tow truck driver comes over. It's this really nice guy. And he's like, John, it's, it's that new truck that my mom thought I was selling drugs uh, to, to buy. And right. he's like, oh, he's like this beautiful car you have. And you're so young. And he's like, oh, you must be so happy. You know, and I was like, no, I'm not happy. I'm freaking out right now. Like, let's get <laughs> get the battery juice charged. Like I am like, you know, freak it out. I got just like super stressed. And you know, he's doing that. And he's like, he's like, I want to show you something. He's like, come here, look at this in his car. He had this like janky little black and white TV. He's like, I saved up my money to buy this. And I'm so happy that I could finally afford it. It just brings me so much happiness. And he was just such a happy guy. He could like exuding happiness. And it was really kind of like, you know, and here I had this nice fancy car with like a huge screen TV in it and all this stuff. And I wasn't happy at all. I was uh, so focused on, you know, the money and getting the best outcome. And and I just really kind of not seen the forest through the trees. And that was like a wake up call. And I and I sat there for a second. I said, wow, look at this. I am super fortunate. I am super blessed. And this is incredible. And, you know, and, and we, at this point we've been negotiating, I think for like four or five hours, like maybe longer. Frank comes back down. He's my CFO at the time. He, he is so stressed out. He literally has a, a vein on the side of his head that looks like it's going to pop. It's like swollen. <laughs> he's got dark circles under his eyes. I mean, this guy has been through the battle. And, uh, and I said, Frank, I'm like, look at how for- fortunate we are. Like, look at all this we have. Like, look at this amount of money we've now negotiated to sell this company. This is going to change our lives. Like, this is amazing. Right. And he's like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> he was expecting another, you know, negotiating tactic. And at this point we were pretty close to the original deal. 
original price and stuff. And I said, dude, we're going to take it. We're going to take it. And we're going to like, and we're so fortunate to have this. And he's like, oh, you're right. He's like, this is awesome. And this is going to be great. And, and, uh, you know, we called them up and they're like, yeah, you guys are going to take it. Great. Everybody's happy and everybody's cheering. And, uh, it was like one of the coolest nights. And, um, who knows what would have happened if the tow truck driver didn't, didn't show up, uh, when he did to charge my battery. But that taught me a really important lesson to, you know, stay present and be aware of how fortunate you are sometimes as an entrepreneur, especially when you start hitting certain levels of success. It's so easy to get sucked into the drama and the, all the things that are going wrong because there are always so many things going wrong. But a lot of times we don't even see like how far we've come and, you know, where we are today is a pretty incredible thing. If we were able to tell ourselves, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, hey, you're going to be at this level uh, we probably wouldn't even believed it. We would have been like, that's got to be amazing. We're probably so happy at that point. <laughs> and uh, in reality, there's just more stress and more complication to the, you know, the bigger the businesses get, the more money that's on the table. And it was important, you know, and, and I got lucky that the universe kind of reminded me of that at a, a very important time. And I believe the, the terms of this transaction, they're not public, right? Yeah, no, we're not allowed to, uh, we're not allowed to say. No worries. And so basically, how old were you? I was 27 at the time. And at this point, you decide to pack up your luggage and you go to Indonesia with 10 friends to go surfing and do an attempt at retiring. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you remember, uh, you know, how I started was the motivation to get that house on the beach. And so that was really my mindset is how do I get the house on the beach and, and basically not work? I was working to to not work. Uh, and that was my motivation. And so here, here it is. I made enough to travel and, and sort of retire as a, you know, surf bum. And my first destination was Indonesia. And, um, and, and there was kind of this transition period. So for about six months, I was working for the company that bought us. They already had a CEO of their mortgage lead division. So they didn't need me to run the show. They just needed me to transition everything and, and help them, um, absorb our business into theirs because they were doing roll-up strategy. So there was like six months of like, kind of, you know, not full-time work and much less stressful work because I didn't have, uh, you know, all the pressure of the company, you know, could fail at any, at any time as bootstrappers do. And so I was able to decompress quite a bit for that six months. And then, and then I went to Indonesia and then I was like kind of starting my retirement. And when I went there, I brought all my friends first and we did this amazing two week surf trip. And it was like one of the best two weeks of my life. And I was so happy and I'm lucky to have friends who were, you know, happy for me. And we were all celebrating like, this is amazing. And then all of them being in their twenties, they had to go back to, you know, normal jobs. And so the boat captain actually told me, he's like, Hey, do you want to stay on the Island for a couple of days? I'm going to go pick up the next crew. I'll be back in like three days. And, you know, I've got this resort I'm building right now. It's only half built. So there's no electricity. There's no, um, there's really nothing. The pool's empty. There's no guests there, but I'll feed you, you know, fish and rice every day and you'll have water and there's a great surf spot right out front. So if you just hang out for three days, you know, I'll be back. And I was like, yeah, this sounds amazing. You know, I'm just going to surf and relax. Well, he takes off and the surf goes flat and there's nobody that speaks English. There's nobody even around, really. Just the person that brings me the fish and rice for breakfast, lunch and dinner. So this was the first time in my life that I had gone completely off the grid. My cell phone didn't work. My uh, there was no power. Uh, there was no TV. There was nothing to do except sit in nature and, uh, and there wasn't even surfing and it's really incredible experience to go off the grid like that. And now I do it on a regular basis, but that was kind of an accidental thing. And it just really forced me to kind of think about life and go kind of deep on reflecting on, do I really want to retire? 
And it, it was beautiful because it, you know, through that, you know, through basically a, by the kind of the second day, I had realized, wow, when I really look back at it, I've kind of always been an entrepreneur. And when I look, you know, now having some money in the bank, like that didn't really change anything. Like I'm not that much happier, although it is a lot less stressful. Um, but in terms of fulfillment, that was, that was actually lacking. I kind of missed some of those uh, things that I got is in, in the thick of things as an entrepreneur. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know what actually makes me happy and fulfilled as an entrepreneur is actually the, the process of building something, building something new and exciting that's never existed anymore, all the learning and growth that comes from that. And then the icing on the cake is the impact, the impact that I make in my employees' lives, the impact that I make in the customers' lives, the impact I make on the world, hopefully making the world a slightly better place. That is, that is so fulfilling, and that is such a uh, intrinsically fulfilling purpose, and that just changed me on the spot. And I basically, from that point on, said I'm not going to build companies for the money. Uh, I'm going to build it for because that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Like that's I've yeah. clearly who I am, and that's the talent I've been giving. And let's grow that talent. Let's continue to evolve it, and let's see like how crazy big the positive impact on the world can be. Uh, by really uh, continuing to learn and develop my skills. And, you know, from that moment on, I, I'll never work for money only. Uh, money is an important part of running a business. Without it, you die. So cash still is king. But ultimately, the types of companies I work on and the types of people I surround myself with and just, you know, what my life goals are have, have completely shifted to one of more about learning, growing, and impact rather than uh, material things. I hear you. I hear you. And I've also heard you talk about how when when you know this transaction happened and and you were in the, in Indonesia, you would take a look at your bank account and and definitely at the beginning that a feeling of happiness of seeing all these zeros in your bank account was was really nice. But but I kind of like agree with you that that happiness at the end of the day is just a it's a feeling, right? It's an emotion. It's 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 instant. But the real the real, uh, I think, ultimate is is joy, and the joy is is a state of mind that I guess you would receive when, for example, what you're talking about now, the the real process of of building and and doing something that has an impact. So, so I wanted to ask you here. So, in Indonesia, you come up as well uh, with with your next attempt, I would say, and that was Mojo Pages. Can what what happened here? Because it was kind of like short lived until you realized what was going on with Yelp. Yeah, basically, the sort of is Yelp. Uh, Yelp kicked our ass. <laughs> there was a there was a really good learning lesson in that one for me. You know, I came off the sale of my company, and uh, and I was feeling like I, you know, I'm unstoppable. Like I know how to build companies, and I know how to market companies, and I had a million mortgage leads. So you know, I I can <clears throat> I can go build a bunch of other companies and. Um, so what happened, uh, there was an idea I'd had, I'd had this idea for like, I want to say three or four years, which is basically ratings and reviews on local businesses. So you would know which ones to go to and which ones to avoid. I had been ripped off by a moving company really spurred me to be like, man, we need more transparency around local businesses. I kind of put that idea on hold because I was working on building, you know, the, uh, the client shop. And so that was definitely full time and took all my attention when I sold it. I was like, and then I had that epiphany on the beach. I was like, oh, this would be a great time to build that. 
So I literally ran to a 14.4K modem internet cafe in the middle of Indonesia and, and, and uh, registered the name and started working on that company. What I didn't know is that Yelp had basically launched like I think a year and a half or two years earlier, and they were just getting ready to raise a big round of funding. By the time I got back to the States, and was like ready to launch, like pretty much right around the same time that I was like building up the company, and getting ready to launch. They had just raised a ten million dollar round. And what had happened is they had they had gotten their model perfect. They had refined it in San Francisco. They had gone through a kind of a, an early pivot themselves, and really gotten the model dialed. And were starting to expand to other cities, and it was working in other cities. And so that that ten million was their you know expansion round to scale up. And here I was just getting started. And that valuable lesson I learned, like it, when people get the product market fit dialed, especially when it's a two-sided network, so it has network effects that drive the growth, they're starting to enter that hockey stick growth phase. If you're just starting when they're hitting the hockey stick growth, you'll never catch them because their rate of acceleration is accelerating and, and it's already ahead of yours. Uh, and you're down here just getting started. Like it's very rare for you to come and, and beat somebody. What you need to have happen if you're going to win in a situation like that is the company has to screw up like my, uh, you know, my space to Facebook, right? Like there was just a bunch of kind of poor execution and decisions made on my spaces, which kind of made room for Facebook's model. Yelp, on the other hand, they just executed exceptionally well. There wasn't a lot of room left for a competitor. They just did a really good job. And so, you know, what I took away from that is I want to be Yelp next time. You know, I want to get out to that marketplace first, I want to dial in the product market fit as quickly as possible, pivot as quickly as possible if you need to, and get to that exponential growth curve. Because once you're there, uh, I joke around, you know, once you get to that to, to that spot, you could replace the CEO with, you know, a, a monkey, and it would probably still grow tremendously fast and do pretty damn well. Now, when you have a great CEO running it, it just accelerates that growth. But once you've hit that growth curve and those network effects are kicking in, it's really hard to to uh, to not grow um, because yeah. just feeding off itself at that point. I hear you. And we've seen that they, you know, lately with with companies, for example, like like Uber, right, where they have like some internal issues and obviously that contaminates a little bit the culture. But, you know, at that point, you know, to your point where you have those networking effects going in the right direction, it just makes it unstoppable. So I'm right there yep. with you, and, and the winner's take all is, is something to, to really keep in, in mind there. So in 2010, you launched Mogul. So uh, how, how did you come up with this? I, I believe that you co-founded this with Jared and Jeff. So how did that relationship happen, and what was the incubation process behind this? Yeah, sure. So Jared and Jeff were um, team members that I brought on to Mojo Pages. Jared ran our technology. Um, Jeff was our COO. And so, you know, here we are at Mojo Pages realizing that Yelp is uh, very difficult, if not impossible, to catch. So what do we do? We we pivoted our model to um, be a private label platform for media companies, TV, radio, newspapers that wanted to have their own Yelp-like directory. And, and that worked. And the company became profitable. That was all great. So Mojo Pages was saved. We didn't die. Uh, thankfully, and you know the the pivot you know got us to a good spot. But the problem was is that that wasn't true to my my purpose. You know that was just a survival move that we did. But I really wanted to have this impact in all of these people's lives, this positive impact. And and that was really what Yelp was doing. That was they had solved the problem that was dear and near to my heart. And I was sort of solving it 
for other people, but just not, not really at that level that got me super excited. So we were kind of thinking about other things we could do um, that could have a big impact. And that was when the idea for Mogul came around. And that concept was, hey, look, everybody's got cell phones and smartphones. It's like 2010. Gamification was really hot. Foursquare had just uh, launched and just crushed it. And everybody's like, oh, what if we could gamify, you know, different things? And what would be the impact there? And so we were like, let's build a restaurant rewards app. There wasn't really a great one out there. Let's build the best one. Let's add gamification to it to help uh, make it really sticky. And let's have like kind of a change the world component too. So what we did was every time you... You, so you used Mogul, you would go out to eat at restaurants, and we would give you cash back for eating at particular restaurants. But we would also donate a meal for every meal you ate. We would donate one meal to a local food bank, and that way somebody who couldn't afford a meal would would get access to one as well. So kind of had this like cash back component, this sort of feel good, and there was also a gamification component where you would be ranked against others that ate at that restaurant. Whoever spent the most money there in a month. Uh, would would be the mogul and would get a uh, an additional cash reward. So that was the that was a concept. Um, and when we launched it, it was growing like a weed. We launched it, and I think for the entire first year, uh, it grew something like uh, thirty to sixty percent every month. Uh, it was just phenomenal. But and then that helped us. So we raised VC to get that deal done and to get that launched. And then we raised a second round nine months after launch because it was growing so fast. And I thought we were sitting pretty in, in sort of the promised land uh, because of all this growth. But I, I, I learned another incredibly valuable lesson, which is there's a big difference between the early adopters who pick up your product and love to use it and tell all their friends. And so you have this viral coefficient that's really strong. You have this usage pattern that's really strong. But this kind of goes to that old you know, theory about crossing the chasm. But once I kind of used up most of those users, and we were launching city by city, so like San Diego, I'd kind of gotten all the early adopters on. Once we started getting into more of the you know general users who weren't nearly as passionate and didn't think it was nearly as cool, their viral coefficient wasn't even close to what the early adopters were, and their user behaviors weren't nearly as good either. And so we entered this really challenging time, which was, okay, we just raised bunch of money. We were going kind of all in on getting this launched into many more cities. We'd gone to LA and we'd gone to San Francisco. And then we got sort of outside of the early adopter curve and we could see what the usage behavior was for everybody else. And it wasn't sustainable. I mean, it was, if we would raise like hundreds of millions of dollars, we had raised 15 million so far, just incredibly expensive to sign up all of those users, to sign up all of those restaurants and, uh, and, and, and build both sides of the network with the kind of user behaviors we were seeing in terms of spend and lifetime value and, and, you know, attrition and all of that. So that was a, that was a dark, it's a dark I period. You. I hear you. So, so what point does uh, Empire come into place? Yeah. So once we realized that that model was tough, we spent all of our time It's kind of going back to the client shop days. We spent all of our time trying to figure out how do we lower the cost of acquisition for, um, the consumer side of the business, as well as for the merchant side of the business. So we were signing up restaurants. So we had a, a feed on the street sales team at first, and we optimized that. I think it was like $2,000 to acquire a restaurant when we started, which was really bad. Got it all the way down to, I think, something like 1200 bucks. That's all in sales commissions, sales salaries, et cetera. We're like, how do we get it even lower? Move to an inside sales team. That got it all the way down to sort of like $800 acquisition costs. Um, but we kind of like hit a wall there. They kind of stopped improving no matter how good we got the script and 
and our lead source and our marketing and all of that. That was kind of the best we got to. Oh, local businesses like restaurants are really hard to sell to. I have a lot of entrepreneurs that come to me for advice on that. Uh, and usually the advice is um, figure out a way to automate that and and good luck figuring that out because that's like the holy grail that everybody's been trying to figure out. And I'm not sure if anybody's really nailed it um, nailed it yet because the sales force is just so expensive. You don't make enough money off the the merchants to cover your sales costs typically. And that's why a lot of companies like Belly and others have have not succeeded. Uh, and guys like uh, Level Up pivoted uh, to you know a to- totally different model. It's just really challenging uh, getting those guys to work. And we pivoted too. In fact, Belly, Level Up, and uh, Mogul were heavy competitors back when we first launched. We all launched around the same time. We all raised a similar amount of money. <laughs> Belly died. Uh, we pivoted and Level Up pivoted. <laughs> that, that entire sort of loyalty market is just incredibly challenging. Also very tempting. So I see a lot of people still jumping into it. But uh, but very challenging to get it to work properly. So what do you do? You know, we're trying to get the price down. Uh, we kind of hit a wall on the merchant side. Same thing on the consumer side. We got pretty good with marketing. Um, we could acquire a user for five or six dollars. And that was a user that would actually link up their credit card to our app. That's how it all worked. It all worked by you just paying with any credit or debit card that you would link to the app. It was all tracked through Visa, MasterCard, and Amex. Pretty cool back end technology. But uh, but that was it. So when we looked at the numbers at eight hundred dollars and that, we couldn't make it work. So we kept trying things like we did we did kiosks inside restaurants to lower the cost. Uh, we brought the sales team inside. We did probably about four or five different ideas. They all dropped the price, but they didn't drop it low enough. And that's when the aha moment happened. Why don't we just become a platform? Why don't we just open up our APIs, and make let other people run their own card link program, like say Yelp, uh, who was one of our biggest clients and one one of the earlier adopters of the program, they can get all of the users to sign up for free because they already have access to all the users. They'll just add this as a function on there and, you know, and we're in business. And so that's what we did. We started going out there. We turned it into a platform. We got approval from Visa MasterCard Dynamics to share that data and, and, and get that whole network thing set up, which took years. Um, and, uh, and that just changed the business completely. Now we have literally a zero customer acquisition cost. We, you know, we don't pay for the consumers. Our partners like Yelp, Retail Me Not, Acorn, Stash, these guys have the users already. So there's offering this as an enhanced product. It increases their stickiness. It earns them revenue, more revenue per user. Uh, and, and it makes their users happier. It's cash by you know, eating in uh, restaurants and, and buying coffee at Starbucks and you know, just going to all of these brick and mortar businesses that we now have. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense for them. It makes a lot of sense for us. It's a much better model and now we're in a much better place, but that was a, that was a tricky pivot. I hear you. And and especially at that point, you had very sophisticated VCs. I mean, you had people like Sigma partners, correlation ventures, Jackson square ventures, just, just to name a few. So just out of curiosity, how did you meet these guys? Yeah. So Avalon ventures was one of those stories of like how to raise money uh, in sort of the way that is just really easy. You know, we got fortunate, me and Steve were at the same event. I was uh, donating some time to one of the local startup um, community things. I think it was uh, Founders Institute and it was a talk on game mechanics. And I had just started really kind of getting to getting to know that industry and gave a talk on it and was inspiring all these entrepreneurs. So, Hey, maybe you can use this in your app. Steve was in the audience. He said, you know, this looks really interesting. Let's talk. We we met for um, uh, lunch or dinner at a restaurant. And I said, look, I think game mechanics applied to restaurant rewards could be really interesting. Uh, and he did too. We both like, it was totally aligned. Uh, 
And he was like, this is really interesting. We might, you know, lead your, your A. And, you know, a few months later they did. And so that made that VC process pretty, um, you know, pretty sort of quick and, and painless. And Steve has remained to be just an incredible uh, partner, very aligned and, and just really um, has operational chops and VC experience. So that worked, that was just awesome. The second time around for the series B, that was nine months after launch. You know, we had good growth, as I say, in sort of 30 to 60% a month, really exciting, but also kind of unproven. And a lot of VCs were hesitant. So I ended up meeting with, I think a dozen VCs and uh, it was a very challenging process. We got a lot of no's along the way and we ended up meeting um, Sigma Partners, which is now Jackson Square Ventures, Pete Solvik, and he really got the the model. Uh, and he put us through some pretty intense due diligence. You know, meeting with all the restaurant owners personally uh, to make sure that they were happy with the product, which was you know really cool. He came out of San Diego. We literally just like drove around and met with like you know a half dozen or a dozen outside of all, of course, the financial due diligence, everything else. These guys really do their homework. And at the end of the day, I said, you know, this is a really good business. The, the, the customer is super happy. Uh, the growth rates are phenomenal. And he put in money. But, you know, we were really at a very critical point because we were burning money also so fast. So, you know, that was one of those scary moments where we raised just in time. And I think the thing that I pulled out of that experience was, you know, my pitch got better and better as I went through the process. And I'd done a bunch of pre, you know, learning and, and warming up. In fact, you know, back up five years uh, at Mojo Pages, we had raised a bunch of money, um, primarily from the angel circuit. So I got to practice pitching and I would highly recommend entrepreneurs do this. I think a lot of people jump right into the VC circuits and their pitching probably isn't as good as it could be with some practice. So I went and pitched, I want to say hundreds of angels uh, in the Mojo Pages days to, uh, to raise some money because we needed capital to get that business going. And uh, that was incredibly helpful when it came to meeting with like Steve at the diner. You know, my pitch was pretty refined and same thing, you know, nine months later. Um, but even after it was refined, I still learned that I just, I just got just better and better because every VC that, you know, the, these VCs are typically pretty smart. They're pretty good at pattern recognition. They always seem to pull some nugget out that I'm like, oh, that's a really good point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that or I thought about that, but I just, I need to go deeper on that. I need to have a better understanding of that because this is a sticking point for this VC and my current answer is not sufficient to get them comfortable that I know uh, the right thing to do in this, in this situation. So um, better pitch. So, you know, closer and closer to a yes. And then by the, you know, 12th VC, I had the, uh, I had the yes we were looking for. So I think there's some, I've heard this advice, I think on your show before I listened to it, I think it's a great show. I've gotten a lot of good tips. Um, you know, one of those is, you know, work, work on the, you know, sort of not ideal VC, not your perfect match, you know, first, I think that absolutely has played, played true in my life for sure. And I highly recommend you do that because you, there's no question about it. As long as you're listening and you're taking that feedback, uh, you're going to, you're going to learn a lot through the process and you're going to get better and better and better. And by the way, not only on your pitch, but I love pitching VCs. Some entrepreneurs hate the process. I love the process because I learn so much. I love meeting with really smart people and they're dissecting my business. Think of it like they're giving you an hour of their time and their time's very valuable. These guys, you know, to get to some of the top VCs is not trivial. It's very challenging and they have earned that spot. Their yeah. feedback can be super valuable. You can learn a ton from the process and you can make some great relationships too. So I, I uh, try to enjoy the process because there is a quite a, quite a process. <laughs> I hear you. I mean, it's definitely a process and, and I always tell founders that, that they need to embrace it. So 
So I guess talking about the pitch and, and you know, the vision and, and, and I guess the future, like where do you see Empire in the future? Yeah, so we have completed our pivot. Uh, it is working. We're now starting to see some of the network effects kick in, which is super cool. On the publisher side specifically, I would say we are definitely seeing network effects kick in. We're, we're at the point now where, you know, maybe 50 companies a quarter come to us to launch a card linked offers program. Um, and at this point, you know, we're still kind of building those up uh, sort of one at a time. So we have to kind of be picky on that. So we're bringing on great brands, like I was mentioning Acorns and Stash and some of these FinTech guys are, are launching programs uh, and we love working with them. That's one of the cool things we get to work with great people um, on that side. So we're hitting critical mass there. Our, our core focus is to try to get now the other side of the network, which is all the merchants uh, to hit critical mass. And we're talking to national merchants that can get exposure to what we now have 320 million consumers um, across all of our publishers in terms of you know, running card linked offer networks. So now we're trying to get great brands like you know Starbucks as a customer, Under Armour, Sephora, we need to get that to, we've got maybe a couple dozen of those brands. We need to get that to hundreds of brands. And we need to get that to the same the same growth pattern that's happening on the publisher side, which is inbound uh, interest. And that's starting to happen. You can kind of see it. Um, but once that clicks over, uh, you know, this company is going to hit this even more exponential growth than we already are seeing. And um, I think the I think it's going to be a game changer for, for the industry. Um, and one of the things I'm kind of excited about you know, by building this card linking in industry is one of the coolest things we can do is uh, work with nonprofits. So to, to go back to that sort of impact and how you make a difference, I think it's important to have that in your business. It helps with, um, you know, the fulfillment you get from running a business. And in our case, we can help um, nonprofits raise money for any cause that they have by launching their own card linked offers program. And instead of giving cash back to their users, when they go out and buy a coffee at Starbucks or a meal at a, at a restaurant, that cash back gets donated to the cause. And we've been sort of waiting to launch that until we have critical mass of, you know, the merchants, which we're getting close to. But once we have that, we can launch that program. And I think we're going to be able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars for uh, nonprofits across the world. And that's uh, that's been a uh, a, a patient game, <laughs> you know, just waiting till we get to that point, but we're getting close. So I'm excited about that. That's, that's definitely a big, big piece of our future. Really cool. Really cool. So, so if you could go back to the past, uh, John, and give yourself advice before launching a business, what would that be? I think the best advice would be, and there's a lot of them, but just recently, this has really kind of rung true for me, which is don't get, um, caught up in the outcome. You really never know what's good and what's bad long-term. I remember my first company, uh, you know, that sales sale was a small amount. Some would consider that a, a failure. And thank goodness that that happened. Uh, I could still be selling baby products today. <laughs> and instead I'm, I'm working on things that I'm super passionate about. And ultimately, uh, I mean, just in a really incredible place, but along the way that there were so many of those things where I wanted a specific outcome and that outcome didn't happen. Something different happened, but that what was different ended up being better for me in the long term. Tons of examples of employees. You know, it's one of the toughest things for an entrepreneur is when an employee quits, you never know what's going to happen. I can point to time and time again where I found somebody else ended up being an even better fit, was better for the new person that come on, came on in the company, but also better for the person that left because they went on to do great things in a different environment. I've just seen so many examples of 
outcomes in the short term that I was so married to and I was so disappointed when they didn't go my way that ended up being the best thing for me. So now I take a very open-minded approach. I don't get married to the outcomes. It allows me to be less stressed. It allows me to be more mindful uh, when I'm working on it because I just kind of trust that whatever the outcome is, I'm not sure if it's good or bad. So let's just give it our best shot and uh, roll with how it goes and uh, yeah, not uh, not stress too much on it. it has to go exactly the way I want it to go. Sometimes the way I don't want it to go is actually the best way for me to go. Got it. I love it. Uh, John, what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Uh, yeah, Twitter is probably a good one. Uh, just John Carter, pretty straightforward. It's spelled a little funky. It's J-O-N and then it's Carter, C-A-R-D-E-R. Um, also, email me, uh, john at empire.com. That's J-O-N at E-M-P-Y-R dot com. Amazing. Well, John, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so, so much. Alejandro, uh, pleasure was all mine. Thanks. That was a lot of fun. Appreciate uh, you bringing me on. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.